I must confess, I'm not much of a Latin scholar, so uh, recently I had to look up what the Latin abbreviation NB stood for, because I keep seeing it in the bulletin, and I'm thinking, what is NB? Yes, important. Apparently it's nota, be, nota bene, nota bene, note well. Uh, so it's important. I, I kind of thought that's what it meant, but I, I looked it up just to be sure. Maybe you're uh, like me uh, and aren't as familiar with such terminology. There is one phrase I do know. Perhaps you've heard of it as well. Vox populi, vox Day. The voice of the people is the voice of God. That is a phrase which you might say uh, is almost a religious one for people who are uh, religiously democratic in their convictions. Of course, we're thankful to be in a democracy, but there are are those who would appeal to such a concept and say, the voice of the people, popular opinion, the will of the masses carries divine authority. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Well, we're going to look today at 1 Samuel chapter 8. We've been working through the book of Samuel verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and this evening we come to chapter 8, and this phrase, the voice of the people, it comes up here in our passage, but what we find out very quickly is that the voice of the people is not the voice of God. The voice of the people is very much opposed to God. And perhaps a better phrase or idiom that we might come away from our passage today saying is not the voice of the people is the voice of God. We might come away from this evening and say, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. Be careful what you ask or pray to God for, you just might receive it from his hand. Tragically, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's beloved people raise their voice in mutiny against the king of heaven. They demand a substitute, a different king, a king like the nations have, and the result will be disastrous. You see, the voice of the people is not the voice of God, so we need to be careful what we ask for. God may give it to us, and yet by the end of things, certainly by the end of the canon of Scripture, we understand this as well, that though sinful men raise their voice to reject God, God's voice has decreed our redemption. He speaks, He has spoken, and He in human history is at work. Even through man's rejection of Him, He is at work to redeem for which we can be thankful. We're going to look at this chapter in three sections, verse 1 through 9, and then after that, verse 
uh, 10 through 18, and lastly, verse 19 to 22, we see the voice, the people's voice of rejection. We see Samuel's voice of reason. And we see the Lord's voice of response. And I'll read each section before we look at it. So let's begin then, brothers and sisters, with verse 1 through 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is what the word of the Lord says. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. To back up a little bit in um, 1 Samuel, of course, by this time, God has raised up Samuel, the son of Hannah, to be a judge. What we'll see really is he is the last judge. Unless, of course, we count our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the last judge of Israel at this period of their history. He is a prophet, perhaps really the first prophet after Moses, a prophet so far the most like Moses He's a Levite, and he exercises kind of a priestly role. And in chapter 7, he has led God's people in a reformation of sorts, to turn away from idolatry, to forsake the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and to turn to God and to trust God. And indeed, God granted them victory against the Philistines. And they said, at Ebenezer, till now the Lord has helped us. But soon thereafter, years thereafter perhaps, Samuel's still alive. And though they have forsaken maybe physical idols, it seems they are in a different way turning to idols, turning away from the Lord, looking for a substitute. And so Samuel is old, and it says that 
he appoints his sons to be judges in Beersheba, another area of the country. And what we read there in Deuteronomy would, would tell us that plainly these men showed themselves, at least in time, to be unqualified. And that's the context that these folks, these elders and the people, they come to Samuel and they demand a change. And so these men, these sons, it says they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so in some sense, the, the people's request, you might say, was justified, that they would want different leadership than these men who proved themselves to be greedy and sinful against the Lord. And even if just a brief application from the beginning, what we see in Samuel and his family there is there is yet again a generational breakdown. It's, it's a pretty clear parallel with Eli, although there's some key differences. Samuel is a judge. He has two sons. Eli is a judge. He has two sons. Both of their sons, both of their sets of sons, are disqualifying themselves through their sin. Now, there is a big difference. Samuel does not condone or defend or support in any way that we can see here clearly from our passage the actions of his sons. Now, he appointed them, and perhaps some people might say, well, that in itself uh, would have been sin. I'm not convinced that that is clearly anything that he did wrong because they could have started doing this after the fact. But there is a parallel going on here. And there's an irony as well because in Gideon and Eli and now um, Samuel, there is a, a man who's a judge, a man who is seeming to seek after the Lord, certainly with Samuel, who is an exemplary man, and the next generation turns away from the Lord. And the irony is, having seen this, they want an institution which is going to solidify generational leadership. They want a monarchy. Judges did not need to be passed from father to son. God was raising up judges. And in three instances, at least, he raised up a judge and then his son tried to take uh, leadership and, and did wicked things. But the Lord raised up different judges from different places and different families. They see the generational breakdown and what they want is a monarchy where you have a father who is king, and upon his death, his heir takes the throne, and his heir after him takes the throne, and it goes on and on generation by generation. And so you might say it's a foolish request simply for that reason. They're asking for the very thing that they see the problem with in Samuel. His sons do not walk in his ways. And that language is used again and again we'll see later on in the scriptures from king to king. One king does not walk in his father's ways. Well, this is what they ask for. And by way of application, 
we could at least say, and our pastor reminded us of this this morning, you can have a godly man and godly parents, godly examples, committed to the Lord, committed to the Christian scriptures, who seek to raise godly children and their children depart. And I think in Samuel's case, Certainly the scripture gives us no reason to think Samuel did anything wrong. There is no condemnation of Samuel the way there was of Eli. There is no condemnation. And we must understand that parents cannot guarantee the salvation of their children. Parents cannot guarantee that their children will be regenerated in their hearts and follow after the Lord and follow in their footsteps. Parents can simply teach their children, preach the gospel to their children, set a good example for their children, and yet only the Lord can save. Only the Lord can change the heart. And the Lord does not hold us accountable for the conversion of our children, only that we be faithful to our responsibilities as parents and teaching them and seeking to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I think such was true of Samuel. And tragically, his sons didn't follow in his ways. And so we have this situation. And I should say as well, what they see wrong in these sons, this is important to identify. How important it is that we have leaders who are marked by integrity, marked by honesty, marked not by greed, but by selflessness. Such is very hard to find in this world. It requires a work of grace in the human heart. You know, we pray for, we pray for pastors um, to be raised up in churches across our nation and other parts of the world. And in our prayers, we should also pray for this. Men who would not be marked by going after gain or perverting justice, but, but men who are marked by integrity, mar men who are marked by adherence to God's Word, men who are marked by selflessness. And, and pray, pray for that in our church too. I'd ask you pray for me. Pray for the elders. Pray for the deacons. That we would be men marked by selflessness and integrity. Well, these elders come to Samuel and they want to change. And Samuel obviously takes it personally. They don't like his sons. They, they've seen what he's trying to do. And in some ways, Samuel is almost kind of trying to function perhaps like a king of sorts and handing off leadership to his sons. And they say that they don't want his sons to continue. They don't walk in his ways. He says, they say, appoint for us a king to judge us. Well, he's the one that's judging them. He's the one with his sons who is leading there in Israel. And so Samuel feels that they're rejecting him. It displeases him that, that they want a king instead to judge the nation. He prays to God. And God says, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. 
And maybe that's not obvious by the request. But brothers and sisters, we must not forget what God has done in the history of Israel. You see, when God came to them, when God heard their pleas for mercy in Egypt, He brought them out by great acts of power. He left the land of Egypt, which enslaved them and sought to really to to eliminate them, to exterminate them. He left Egypt desolate. He left Pharaoh and his army dead on the side of the Red Sea. And he provided for them in the wilderness. And he made a covenant with them at Sinai and said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And he said, you will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. And who's the king? God is the king. The book of Deuteronomy elaborates in chapter 33, I believe it's verse 1 to 5, and it speaks about God as their king. He made himself king over the people of Israel in redeeming them out of Egypt and making a covenant with them at Sinai. Sinai. And, And scholars have said the whole book of Deuteronomy functions as a treaty. It looks like what they would do back then when there was a king and his subjects making a treaty together. That's how the book of Deuteronomy is structured. And so we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy and they're going into the promised land and they've made this covenant with God. God is their king. They are his people. He reigns over them. He fights their battles for them. Remember just a couple chapters ago in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel, the ark gets lost and what happens? God defeats the Philistines for his people single-handedly. No one else was there. There were, there were no human beings with the ark. The ark was there in the temple of Dagon and God destroyed the idol of Dagon, and he afflicted the Philistines there to the point that they sent it back. God fights for his people. He's their king. He's delivered them. He loves them. He's their God. He has shown special grace to them in saving them and calling them as his own. And here they have rejected him. They want a different king. They want a king, as it says later on in our chapter, who will go before them and fight their battles. That's what God's been doing. They don't want God to be their authority. They want to be instead like the nations. And so, by way of application as well, This phrase comes up a couple of times, this king like the nations phrase. It shows their thinking. It shows their motivation. They don't want to be different. They don't want to be holy unto God. They see the way the other nations function and they want to do the same things that the other nations do. 
And so they've committed mutiny against their God and they demand another king. They idolize the military king of the nations and that is what they want. And they don't want to be holy unto the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, we already read one passage from Romans 13. Another passage worth uh, mentioning is 1 Peter 1 where, where God says to them, just as in the Old Testament, be holy as, as I am holy. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. So too for us, the church. We're not to look around at the world around us and say, we just got to be more like the world. We just need to be more like the nations. That's the solution. I've, there's this word that makes me cringe. Perhaps this will bother you that I say this. I hope not. Maybe it makes you cringe too. Many Christians use this term, relevant. They want to be relevant. I hear that word, it, it makes me cringe every time. Now, it can mean one thing, which I think is perhaps true, if understood properly, but often what people mean when they say relevant is they, they want the church to be, say, more like listening to a TED Talk or going to a rock concert. They want to mimic the values and the viewpoints of a lost world. They want, say, egalitarianism, and they want environmentalism, and they want social justice, and they want all the things that the world values and all the things that the world thinks, because if we don't get on the same track as the world, we're not relevant. We must guard against the pull to be like the nations, to be conformed to the patterns of this world, to return to former lives of sin. Maybe perhaps you feel a bit like an outcast. And you know, that might be a good sign. We don't have to go out of our way to be oddballs, but if we feel like we stick out like a sore thumb in the workplace or at the family gathering, it might be because you're actually doing something right. If you are seeking to live a life pleasing to the Lord, holy unto God, glorifying to God, you will have different priorities. You will have different values. You will have different viewpoints. And people might shake their head and think you are strange and think you are weird or staunch or maybe even they'll say bigoted. We need to be different in how we worship. We need to be different in how we marry, different in how we raise our children, different in how we um, organize our homes, different in our celebrations and in our mourning and in our habits and our practices. You know, um, again, this is an illustration. I hope it doesn't cause offense. Please just hear me out here. I had a, a brother that I was chatting with, um, a Christian brother, and he was talking to me about uh, his tattoos. And he said that the reason he got his tattoos, I'm not against tattoos, so hear me out. I'm not necessarily against tattoos. I know many people with tattoos. But he said the reason he got his tattoos is because the Word became flesh. And I thought, you know, 
John chapter 1 is about the incarnation of God's Son, not about your tattoos. He wanted to be relevant. He thought that maybe having a tattoo would help him witness to people with tattoos, and so he, he got a tattoo. That was his reasoning. And so all, all that I'm trying to say, brothers and sisters, is this. Not so much about tattoos, but my point is this. We need to be holy as God is holy. And if you want to be relevant to a dark and sin-sick world, stand out as a light. Light is relevant to darkness. Salt is relevant at the meat market. Christ was relevant to a wicked and perverse generation, and they crucified him. You see, we should be different, and and different is an understatement. We must be holy. We've been called to be holy by our God, and holy means not being like the nations, not being conformed to the patterns of this world, not seeking to make ourselves more and more like the world, but make ourselves more and like Jesus Christ. So we come to the end of this first section, and I think this section is probably a lot longer than the other one, so bear with me here. We come to the end of this first section, and God simply says to Samuel, Obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. He wants them to warn them. So that's what Samuel does. So we've seen in this first section the people's voice of rejection. And in the second section, we see Samuel's voice of reason. So let's read verse 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Be careful what you ask God for. He just might give it to you. So Samuel warns them. They're asking for a king. He wants them to understand You want a king like the nations? Do you know what the kings of the nations are like? Do you really understand what you're asking for? The kings of the nations are military men. 
And quite frankly, they're greedy men. They're sinful men. And the word that comes up over and over and over and over again in that description, I don't know if you caught it, they take and they take and they take and they take. They take their sons, they take their daughters, they take their property, they take their, uh, their resources, a tenth of the grain and of vineyards and so on. That word take is emphasized in the text. And at the end of it all, they are slaves. And the situation is pretty obviously compared to that of Egypt. It's like they're back in Egypt again, except they're in Israel. Because they're slaves. Except the difference is, it says in verse 18, in that day you will cry out because of your king. Except the difference is this, they're crying out and it says God, the Lord, will not answer you. So you have left Egypt with The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who expected so much of you, demand after demand, violence after violence, building his army, building his empire, and you cried out for redemption from the slavery, and God has brought you out, and you've come into the promised land, and God is your king, and God is your savior, and God is your Lord, And he is a merciful and just and loving God. And what do you want? You want a king like the nations? Like Pharaoh? Like the other nations too? You want to be slaves again? God won't answer you if that's what you want. That is a heavy message, isn't it? Careful what you ask for, God may give it to you. You know, God is not a God who takes and takes and takes. He gives and He gives and He gives. He's given us His own Son. He's given us His Holy Spirit to live inside of us. He's given us countless blessings which we don't deserve. The hope of eternal life upon Christ's return. God is a selfless God. He gives of himself, he's given us of his own son. Scripture says God is love. He's kings. Be the opposite. And of course, there's that famous uh, phrase, the famous quote from Lord Acton uh, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we shouldn't suppose then that evil men gain power while good men do not. The truth is, Apart from God's grace, all of us, give any of us great power and we will do great evil because we are great sinners. And these men in the nations, they're great sinners. They have great power and they do great evil. And God is not like that. And they don't understand that They have God as their king and they want a different system. They want a different king. They want to substitute the righteous God for a wicked king. 
Well, anyways, brothers and sisters, by way of application, we need to be careful because when we make sinful men our Savior, we may soon discover as well that they are like our Lord. And I don't mean this in any sort of a specific political way, but let me just go through a couple examples for you so that we don't get caught up in the same trouble. Of course, we're in a very different situation in terms of history. We're in a different situation politically than they were. We're in a different situation um, in terms of God's covenants and, and so on. But let me say this. If we consider our, our problems to be weather or warfare, whether we consider our problems to be the environment or the economy, disasters or diseases, freedoms or famines, may our trust not be in princes or politicians, but in the Lord our God. See, He alone has wisdom and love and righteousness and the power to rescue and to redeem. He has saved us from our sin through the blood of His Son, and the nations we know now, they won't last. The kings and the rulers and the politicians we have now, they will not last. God's kingdom is forever. And when Christ comes, there will be a new creation in which righteousness dwells, where the bows and the weapons of warfare are destroyed, where death and disease and disaster are no more. And so our response should be then, we're not eager for the next election because we're trusting in princes. We're eager for the return of Christ. When Christ comes back, all things will be subjected to Him, even death itself. Every enemy will be defeated. All of our troubles that we know now, most of all, of course, being our sin, will be no more. And so, we don't trust in men. Any men. We trust in Christ. We bow to Christ ultimately alone. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And so, We've seen this solemn warning from Samuel, Samuel's voice of reason. We've seen the people's voice of rejection. We've seen Samuel's voice of reason. And lastly, we see the Lord's voice of response. Verse 19 through 22. But the Lord refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. So we end on a bit of a cliffhanger in this chapter, and of course we're going to pick it up. God is going to give them what they asked for. He is going to give them a king like the nations. Not good. God responds. 
They double down after this warning about what the kings of the nations are like. They double down and they say, we still want it. Yes, actually, we do want a military leader. We do want a king like that. We'll take it. And so he says, okay, Samuel, listen to them. Give them a king. And, you know, it's tragic. The voice of the people. And yet, brothers and sisters, we know that there's a silver lining as well. And the silver lining doesn't exactly come in this text, right? It comes as we trace out the rest of God's story of redemption. It comes as we understand that eventually God will bring a king after his own heart, not like the nations. And he will bring about the Messiah who will bring salvation for his people and rest from their enemies. And even this king, King Jesus, who came not to take but to give his life as a ransom for many, King Jesus, please turn with me to Matthew 27, As we look at the crucifixion, we see what I think to be a parallel situation in Matthew chapter 27. The people raise their voice, and they raise their voice in rejection of God, of God the Son incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 27, Jesus has been arrested. Let's read from verse 15. It says this, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release the crowd to the, for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The voice of the people cried out, crucify him. Crucify the Lord of glory. Crucify our king. 
substitute him out for the criminal. Put him up there on that cross. You know what they say in the Gospel of John? We have no king but Caesar. They want Jesus crucified. They reject God the Son incarnate, the Lord of glory, and they crucify him. And they say, let his blood be on us and our children. Well, Caesar, this Caesar who they call king, comes in 70 AD and wipes out Jerusalem and destroys their temple. That's their king. They have no king but Caesar. And they crucify the Lord of glory. You see, brothers and sisters, you have to be careful what you ask for. What they said, almost, it should bring tears to my eyes even reading it. What, what they cried out for in rejecting God is absolutely abhorrent. And yet, here's what is amazing about it all. That even in the reasonless, reasonless rejection of God, the idolatrous depravity of man, substituting wicked human men for divine authority, God orchestrates all of this to accomplish his plan of salvation. To redeem us from our sins. He works through what men mean for evil to accomplish our good. Those sinful men raise their voice to reject him. God's voice has decreed our redemption. Though they reject God and Samuel and they've rejected Christ and, and indeed we with them in our sin nature would have done the same thing, rejecting, rebelling against God. Even still, God sends His Son to save rebel sinners like you and me. If you're here today and you have been hardening your heart toward the Lord, you have been resisting the Lord, you have been rejecting the Lord, you just want to be like the world, you just want to pursue your own desires, your own passions, today is the day to trust in the Lord and to turn from such idolatry, to repent and to be forgiven. And to know that even rebel sinners like you and like me can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the love of our God that He wouldn't take, but rather He would give His own Son for you and for me. Rebels who reject Him, He would give His Son for you and for me. Though sinful men raise their voice to reject him, God's voice has decreed our redemption. Praise God for that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that rebels though we are, you have sent your Son to save. Oh God, help us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Apart from your grace, we are wicked. We are so depraved, so caught up in our, the insanity of our rebellion and our idolatry. 
and our sin. Oh, have mercy on us. Help us to trust you. Change us that we might more and more be holy and might glorify your name. We ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.